Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, how does a crab answer the phone? Shalo. How do you rejuvenate an old boat? Boat talks. My guest today is Winnie Courtney Jones, researcher at the University of Plymouth in their International Marine Litter Research Unit. We had such a fun conversation today, starting with Winnie's volunteer position studying dolphins off the coast of Wales in the UK. Winnie shares her graduate research of essentially watching hermit crabs duke it out and how she definitely wasn't going to get a PhD until she did. (laughs) Winnie is a font of knowledge when it comes to plastic and plastic pollution. She has studied it from the coast to the deep sea and over a mile of water and all over the world. Winnie breaks down where plastic is found, what the great garbage patches really look like, and if biodegradable plastics actually degrade. Her conservation ask at the end of this episode is a great one and it's applicable for everyone no matter where you live, so be sure to stay tuned for that. Please enjoy. Winnie, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. Yeah, I'm so excited to chat with you. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, so I want to start at the beginning with you. How did you get into marine science? It didn't seem like this was like your initial trajectory starting out. No, um, right at the beginning. Well, I've, I've, I've always been interested in the natural world, um, mm-hmm. but more on the terrestrial side of things, actually. Uh, so. I was always wanting to study science and my undergraduate degree was in zoology. So I kept it nice and broad just to gain more of an understanding about the natural world. And really it wasn't until I started scuba diving that the underwater world was really opened up to me and I saw the great diversity uh, that was inside it, (laughs) you know, hidden Mm -hmm. below the surface. And That was one of my inspiration for wanting to actually then go on and study it. And I'd say the second thing that kind of got me more into the marine side was when I was about 15 or 16 years old, I started volunteering with a local organisation called Sea Watch Foundation. Hmm. Now, where where I'm from in West Wales, we've got a resident population of dolphin. So they live there year round. And it's just down the road from where I live. Uh, So I went along to this organisation 
um, was able to sort of take part in the office-based work, but also going out on the boat and looking from cliffs, you know, to try and spot dolphins and other marine mammals. But as sort of 15, 16 year old, I was by far the youngest person uh, volunteering and most of the other people were students, PhD students or researchers. And I think that really opened my eyes to what a career in science involved. I think, you know, to that point in my life, I'd only been at school. I was just about to start well, I was thinking about university in a few years time, but didn't really have that much concept of what actually a job in science was like or a job studying the natural world. So I think that was a really valuable opportunity to kind of see what people do on a day to day basis and see what research actually involves. Yeah, I love that you got that experience so young. I mean, 15, 16 to be able to like get that volunteer dolphin experience, which I mean, let's be real, most people, their dream job, but when they think of marine biology, they're like, I want to study dolphins. So like you kind of had that dream job right at the gate as a volunteer. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really it was really the people that I met as well that were just really inspirational and encouraged yes. me to kind of keep pursuing marine science or science in general, whatever aspect um, that was. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, who you work with is so important. I, like mm. the the more experience I get, the more I realize that just it's who you work with that can make or break whatever position you're in. I love that. Yeah. So you decided to study zoology in college and it was and it was at university that you learned to scuba dive and it kind of like shifted your focus into the marine realm. Was it like a specific dive while you were doing it or is it just like being underwater and just falling in love with the ocean and just going, this is it. This is what I want to study. Yeah, exactly that. Just spending time underwater, seeing the amazing colours, even off the coast of the UK and the amazing species that we have. Yeah, that really inspired me to want to learn more. Yeah. So what are some of the creatures that you have off of your coast? I mean, that water's cold. It's very different from where I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. I would dive in a sort of kelp forest. Now, it's not the same sort yeah. of kelp forest that you have in uh, around where you are. Oh, there's no kelp forest in Florida. That's very far away. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, not not over on that part of the world, but um, still very beautiful uh, to see. And um, yeah, amazing fish. And we, you know, we have some of the largest uh, species of shark. We have the basking shark and we have dolphins Mm. that inhabit the waters and seals. So always always a chance to see those larger species as well as the really small ones. Yeah. That's awesome. Actually, speaking of diving in kelp forest, I dove in California, which was very cold. Um, but we saw like some incredible nudibranchs, which mm-hmm. I'd always associated them with cold or warm water rather. So it was kind of fun to see them in cold water. They're really yeah. cool looking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a few of those over here as well. Awesome. Did you know when you graduated with your bachelor's that you wanted to get your master's right away? Yes. At that point, yeah, I wanted to just carry on. It sparked that interest of doing... Um, scientific research so my Mm -hmm. master's degree was a research master's so we only had a few months of a taught classes and then the Mm -hmm. majority of the year then was just diving into an independent research project so it kind of enabled me to develop a lot more of those skills of what uh, being an independent researcher is actually like. Yeah so that's interesting to me. You were at um, University of Wales in Bangor for your undergrad, and then for your master's, you switched and you ended up at University of Plymouth 
why the switch? Did they have like a, a program that you're specifically interested in? Yeah, Plymouth offered this uh, research master's. There's not that many places in the UK that offer a master's degree with such a focus on research. So yeah, that's, okay. that's why I made the switch. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So what was getting your master's with this research focus? Like you mentioned, just fewer classes and more time in the field, I'm guessing? Yeah, although most of my project was actually lab-based, but yeah, it enabled all of us to gain a much greater understanding of planning a project, carrying it out, rather than, you know, when you have just a shorter time, you're a bit more limited on what you can do. Having about eight months to do a project lets you really dive in and do a lot more research or even do a couple of experiments to look at different aspects. Yeah. Could you explain a little bit about your research? Yeah, my research at the time of my master's is very different to what I'm studying now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I actually studied personality and behaviour in hermit crabs. Um, (laughs) Yeah, miles away from what what I study now, but I think it really really develop that sort of scientific curiosity and yeah as I say just just planning a project all the way through and having a a great amount of time to kind of dive in and explore a topic so yeah I was looking at aggressive contests so hermit crabs uh, occupy shells Uh, they don't have their own shell but they live in you know the snail shells so as they Mm -hmm. grow they have to find new shells to live in that won't restrict their growth and the shells are quite a limited resource in the environment there's only so many shells so Mm -hmm. there's stiff competition for the best shell so they fight so I would (laughs) state I would sort of stage these fights by putting uh, (laughs) by putting one hermit crab in a, a shell that the opposition really wanted so I'd you know get them get them to have a little fight and kind of monitor what happened and then after that aggressive contest, monitor their physiology and also their behaviour, how that affected what they then went on and did after that aggressive interaction. I mean, would imagine the difference between like the victor and the loser, their reactions were significantly different. Also, yeah. I'm just envisioning you like I, I'm envisioning you with like a top hat on and like maybe a cane and you're like a full ringleader in here. I'm sure it wasn't like that. But that's, that's, how, that's how it is in my head. <laughs> Not quite, not quite. So after your hermit crabs, did you know that you wanted to get your PhD then? Yeah, absolutely not. I definitely did not want to do a PhD. I just wanted to go out into the world and kind of do something with all of this training that I'd had so far. So I was against doing a PhD almost at the time. like many graduates, I think you you spend so long studying that then you just want to go out there and do something with your degree. Yeah, absolutely. You're ready to be a part of the world. I saw that you worked as a self-employed marine consultant. How did that come about and what was that like for you? Yeah, so kind of in that time out between my master's and then was going on to do a PhD, but I didn't know this at the time, but in this time I was a self-employed consultant and I also worked as a field scientist in Belize in the Caribbean Mm -hmm. so I I went out to Belize first but when I came back after a year spent out there I was actually back in touch with an amazing woman that I'd met all that time ago when I was a volunteer at Sea Watch Foundation and she'd finished her PhD and was working as a researcher at the University of Swansea which is in Wales Mm. 
relatively close to where I live. And um, she was really encouraging me to try and get back into science, pursue a PhD and actually had some work come up at the university. So by setting myself up as self-employed, I was able to take on these small consultancy roles working alongside her and also do different like water quality monitoring surveys in my local area. So that was really the driving force behind getting set up was being able to take on these small contracts and really having this mentor sort of guiding me who came back into my life now several years later yeah it was really the driving force in me trying different things with my career which I think is really important because until you try something how do you know whether you like it or not so yeah it was it was really through her uh, mentorship that I was able to try being self-employed and try different consultancy roles yeah that's really cool and again it highlights kind of who you're working with and getting a mentor is so helpful and so important too to just have that person to yeah like you said guide you and also maybe add give you a little push right sometimes you need somebody else to push you to do things that you're uncomfortable with (laughs) yeah absolutely and see some of the things that they've done you know careers in marine science are so broad so unless you're kind Mm -hmm. of exposed to people that have have done that it's really hard to know what a job actually entails so just being able to see the careers of people which is you know one of the reasons I'm so happy to be speaking with you and the work that you do sort of illuminating all the possibilities of what a career in science actually is and yeah I think that's so valuable when you're starting out to help guide you what your interests what could I be doing what actually does this job involve and could I see myself doing that Yes, absolutely. And something I also love is even if somebody has the same role or title or position as somebody else, and it could be even the same organization, how they both got there varies wildly. Like everybody has their own stories. And I like, this is what I love talking about. It's like everybody has their own circuitous route of getting where they are. And it's fun to hear how it happened. Oh yeah, definitely. I completely agree. (laughs) (laughs) So you're a field biologist in Belize, like you mentioned, and also Tanzania. What were some of the projects that you're working on? Yeah, both of them were sort of coral reef um, research. I was in Tanzania for six months and then Belize for about a year. So a lot of time underwater, uh, scuba diving, carrying out different surveys for coral reef and fish species, also some seagrass surveys, just really documenting the life that was there and how maybe it was being degraded in different areas of the marine parks and whether we were spotting any disease in the coral associated you know, potentially associated with increased water temperatures and bleaching events and just, yeah, contributing to that kind of ongoing monitoring in those regions. Very cool. And that helped add a lot of value, I'm sure, to just your own personal skill set and confidence in doing your own research. Yeah, absolutely. It was obviously a great experience to be in different parts of the world. But yeah, as you said, really valuable for me as well. Mm-hmm. A little bit different than diving in kelp forests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, warm, water was a little bit warmer. <laughs> <laughs> so after getting all this fun experience and like doing your own marine consultancy, what prompted you to go for that PhD? Yeah, so we're, we're back to my mentor. When I got back to the UK, I was looking at what her job was and it was the type of thing that I wanted to be doing. Independent mm. research, developing my own ideas and researching those and 
translating that science into communication or policy or you know just taking that science further to try and make a change and Mm -hmm. I realized to get those types of jobs I needed a PhD I needed that level of Mm. uh, level of training so that was really the driving force behind thinking about doing a PhD and why the topic well when I was uh, in Belize, we lived half of our time in a local village and then half of the time on a remote beach camp. And every day with every tide that came in, seaweed would wash up, but also pieces of plastic. And it just became more and more confronting that wherever we went, all these places that I've traveled to, plastics were everywhere. Mm-hmm. As some of the work that we did in Belize was sort of dissecting invasive lionfish. There are a problem out there have a rapid population expansion and they're consuming a lot of uh, juvenile fish and other large fish out there as well. So we were dissecting them to see what was inside and we were finding, you know, some little hard fragments even inside the stomachs of these lionfish. So yeah, just plastics mm. were were all around. And I thought there's actually very little known about plastic pollution at the time. We're going back mm. to 2013, 2014, and it was quite a mm. new topic. It didn't have the awareness that it does today. And there's still mm. so many questions unanswered. So I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. That's where I see my role in, is in trying to understand plastic pollution. Where does it come from? What impacts does it have? How much is out there? So mm. I saw this PhD being advertised at the Scottish Association for Marine Science, and it was researching plastic pollution in the deep sea. So we're talking Mm -hmm. a few thousand metres below the surface. And I thought, yeah, we we know even less about plastic in the deep sea. So I was fortunate and that I applied and uh, got that PhD. So that's what I've been doing since and my career So, you know, to date now has been focused on plastic pollution. Yeah. And it's so important. And I'm really excited to get into this with you because there's just so many, so many facets to this issue and like what you're studying. So let's like start off with what are like, what are the sources of plastic? What were you finding? Specifically in the deep sea? Yeah, let's start there because that's where you started. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So yeah, my PhD was looking at the amount and the types of plastics that we were finding Mm -hmm. in the deep sea. So specifically, I was looking at the Northeast Atlantic and the site Mm -hmm. there was about 2,000 metres deep. So what's that in feet? Over 6,500 feet deep. Yeah, that's like wild. That's well over a mile. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And is this rock all trough? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in the rock all trough. Okay. So I was looking at sediments and water and also benthic invertebrates. So that's the organisms that live on the seafloor. And mm-hmm. trying to assess, yeah, what types of plastics were in each of those different, uh, let's call them environmental reservoirs in those different matrices. And I found a huge range of plastics. So we use techniques that help us identify the type because, of course, a Plastic is just like an umbrella name. There's so many different types Mm -hmm. of plastic. So Mm -hmm. we were finding things like PET fragments, polyethylene fragments and films, types of polyamide, 
Now, kind of understanding the sources is quite tricky because these polymers are used in so many different applications. So it's not quite as simple as saying, well, we found this type of plastic, so it has to come from this type of application. But generally, we know that the types of plastics we were finding are used for a range of different textiles and clothing and even ropes on marine vessels and a lot of consumer products as well so polyethylene is used in carrier bags and plastic containers and things like that so yeah really a range of of sources but you know ultimately humans are the species that uses plastic so we can attribute all of all of them to our human impact right how I feel like, I feel like you became an expert on plastics, not just like, you know, plastics in the ocean, but like you just listed out three different types of plastic. <laughs> um, how did you collect these samples? I mean, this is like a lot of water that you had to figure out how to transverse. Yeah. So we went out on, I was fortunate to go out twice actually in my PhD on large research cruises on some of the UK uh, fleets of ships that we have. So they're kind of a resource that anyone in the UK can use by to go on to them. And I was able to go out on yeah two different cruises, two consecutive years during my PhD. And we used various different devices to collect these samples. So we're talking, yeah, huge depths. So a lot of it's just sending down equipment and having all your fingers crossed that it's actually going to do <laughs> you think it's going to do because yeah. it, it takes such a long time so we used something called an epibenthic sled to collect the invertebrates now that's just a sled like you might imagine that you sit on to do tobogganing but much much bigger obviously and it's got a huge net inside it and that goes down via some cables to the seafloor gets towed along really really slowly and then gets pulled up and that process of sending it down actually collecting the samples and bringing it up to the surface takes about six hours Mm. it's not something that's really quick you can't just say oh we didn't do this let's just do another one you know you've you've only got Mm. sort of a few chances to collect these samples for the sediment we used corers so you might see on tv shows like ice corers that are used it's kind of the same process it's a tube that you send down to the seafloor and it kind of sinks into it and takes a nice cylinder of sediment that we can pull back up to the surface and then process it when we're on deck. Very cool. I like that you're like, you know, it takes six hours. It's not like a 20 foot bottom grab. You just like throw your equipment down and you're good to go about five minutes. <laughs> yeah. A lot of planning and just, yeah, you have everything crossed that it goes well because yeah, you, you can't just do another one quickly. <laughs> right. And I'm assuming there's lots of sediment in both of these samples, mm-hmm. right? So how did you sort them out? Just like different sieves to get the different plastics and different mesh sizes to get different sizes? A bit more involved than that. For the sediment, we actually used a different extraction method when we were back on the lab. So just preserved everything on the boat and then brought it back to a clean lab in Scotland where I was working to analyse those samples. We have to think that most of the clothes that we wear and the environment around us can Mm -hmm. contain so many plastic fragments and fibres itself. So when we're on board, we can't control those quite as well as we can in a clean lab so we limit the exposure as much as possible and then back on shore 
in the safety of the lab, we can analyse things better. So yeah, we use a different extraction to try and float out all the plastics from the sediment. And in the case of the organisms, it was just dissecting them and looking inside and seeing what we could find. Okay. And I want to kind of take a a step back for a second. You're looking at plastics and plastic particles, and these are primarily now called microplastic. Is there a like cutoff point for what makes a microplastic like a specific size? It's generally thought that everything less than about five millimeters in diameter Mm -hmm. is a microplastic. But I think as, as the science has progressed, we've come to understand that it's a huge continuum. We can have huge floating objects, but we could also have particles down to even the nano size. So things that you can't see with your naked eye. It's just a continual kind of degradation of this material, this plastic into smaller and smaller sized particles. That's so wild to think about. Mm. It really is. And then these creatures, I mean, I'm assuming you found plastics in the sediment. You already said that you were floating them out. What about these deep sea creatures? Were they having plastics that you're finding during your dissections? Yeah, they were. The majority were actually. And again, Mm. we think this site is so deep that there's very few direct human influences we think of the deep sea as being quite you know out of sight out of mind and yet we're finding plastics in the sediments and also in the organisms the same monitoring site has been sampled since the 1970s and there's an amazing specimen collection that have all been preserved intact from the same site so another part of my phd was actually able to look at this time series all the way back to the 1970s to try and track plastic ingestion in deep sea starfish. And what we found was that all the way back, we were finding consistent levels of plastics inside them. So they'd been ingesting this since the mid 1970s. Yeah, I saw that and that just like boggled my mind. For some reason in my head, I'm like, oh no, this is like a 1990s on problem. But the fact that it's been going on for much, much longer just seems more heavy to me. Yeah, well, we think that, you know, the the mass production of plastics only really commenced after the, well, with the Second World War. So in like the mid 1940s and then into the 50s, where Mm -hmm. plastics and the disposable nature of society really came into the into the forefront. So plastics haven't really been around and being consumed by people for that length of time. And yet only a few decades after that, we're already finding them thousands of meters on the seafloor. And what's more, they're small enough and they're in a form that can already be ingested by animals. So that was quite a surprising find of the PhD, actually. Yeah, that really is surprising. You're finding plastics literally everywhere. Like we see them, you mentioned washing up on the shores of where you're doing your samples in Belize and Tanzania. And also now you're finding them in the deep, deep ocean. So they're like very pervasive throughout the entire world. Is there like a primary source that you were able to target, like a specific type of plastic, I guess I should ask, that like was most prevalent? Or was it just kind of like a mixed bag of all the different kinds? There was quite a lot of different types of plastics, but we really found that fibres that were made of either polyester or acrylic or polyamide were the most prevalent in these deep sea organisms. So that's the majority of those fibres of those polymer types come from clothing. If Mm. you look at a lot of the labels on your clothes, they'll say things like nylon. That's a type of polyamide or they might be polyester blends. What we were finding was a lot of textile fibres, even at this depth. So yeah, clothes, 
washing clothes, drying clothes, um, and the emissions that go out associated with those are quite a big polluter. And I think in more recent years, we're understanding that it's these microfibers that actually make up quite a lot of what we're finding in the environment. Yeah. I mean, how surreal is that, right? Like, I mean, obviously most of us don't think about that when we take our shirts off that are made of these polyester fibers and put them in our washer and our dryer, like they go out into the world and find their ways on their beaches or in these deep sea troughs. Like it just really highlights how connected we all are, right? How connected everything is. Yeah, definitely. And it is a challenge, like you say, because so much of them, these these small fibers, they're just, they are just that. They're so small, we can't see them with our naked eye. So it's hard to see that source of emission. Right. So were you able to research steps that we could take to prevent this? Not actually in my PhD, but I've right. become more, more involved in kind of the solutions and more solution thinking as I've continued on in my career. But, you know, I guess in terms of textiles, there's steps that we can all do. I think fast fashion is a challenge for so many reasons, not just plastic pollution, but there's also a host of other um, challenges associated it with, with fast fashion from the water consumption, the often poor conditions that the workers work in to create these clothes mm-hmm. for us. So just consuming less, you know, just buying fewer things is something that we can all do. Having a few items that we look after and repair when we need to rather than just throwing them away is something that I could say that we could all do and it would all save us a lot of money as well. <laughs> yeah, and headache, right? I think that's why like um, Rin Kondo was so popular. Like everyone wants their house to be tidy and neat. If you have fewer things, if you have fewer things to organize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. So since you've graduated with your PhD, you have done some really cool stuff. Would you like to talk about Expedition and some of your career shifts that you've made? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, after I completed my PhD, my first postdoc was at the University of Plymouth, which I'm I'm still based here, but in a slightly different role now. So my first role was working with an organization called X-Expedition, and um, I was their science lead. So This is an all-female initiative, and for their latest programme, they were circumnavigating the world looking for plastic pollution. So I was in charge of collecting those samples, analysing them, designing the science programme that we'd undertake um, during that around-the-world sail. I was really fortunate to go on board for some of the the voyages. So we sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, and I was on board for that one. And then I also was able to be on board when we went into the South Pacific. Now, I guess the timing is a bit unfortunate, given that we left the UK in late 2019. And of of course, Mm. the world's had a bit of a shakeup since then, hasn't it? So um, we we made it a third of the way around. And then, of course, like for so many people, COVID altered plans. So we didn't complete a full circumnavigation, but we got as far as Tahiti uh, before we had Mm. to stow the boat away uh, and all return home. But yeah, it was a fantastic opportunity to actually be on board and get to see some of these really remote places. I think I've been doing research for a long time, plastic pollution research for yeah a while as well but we had uh, women on board with us that from all different backgrounds uh, and just seeing them see 
plastic pollution in some of these really remote areas. Yeah, it was really hard hitting, actually, even for myself, who has been aware of this problem for you know many years now. But seeing it firsthand in places so far from shore where you know, you haven't seen land for a week, you've seen no other boats around you. And then we were doing manta trawls to look at the microplastics at the surface of the water. And we've, we're out there, the ocean is blue, it's the sun's out, you know, it's a beautiful day, you can't see any litter around you. And you pull up this trawl after half an hour, and there's just a confetti of plastic fragments. And I think that kind of difference between expectations and reality, or you don't see anything, but then actually when you've put the net through it, you are finding these small pieces of plastic. It's really sobering, I think. And it was amazing to be part of that experience. Yeah. Is it Expedition X Expedition? Well, there's two X's in it to represent the female chromosomes. So, oh. yeah, because it's a, it's all female. So we kind of say X, X Expedition, but. Okay. All right. So the X Expedition, this has been going on since 2014, I thought I saw on the website. So did they just add the plastic component kind of when you came on board? But yeah, they've been going since 2014, and but usually on, on much shorter voyages. So just they've sailed across the Atlantic and they've done some work into the uh, into the North Pacific as well. But this was the biggest undertaking that they'd done. So I came on board during the round the world voyage to kind of really take on that lead of of science because the plan was to be continually collecting samples for two years whilst we were going around the world so it needed somebody who was able to dedicate all their time into analyzing those samples yeah I mean you got waylaid so are and I'm assuming you've had chances to kind of look at the samples you've collected already Mm -hmm. but are there plans to try to go back and continue or is is it still just on hiatus because of COVID yeah I think there's so many challenges with doing this type of work now because of COVID so as a organization ex-expedition have shifted their focus a lot more onto land and about you know identifying what we can all do on land to try and be part of the solution to the plastics problem okay yeah I mean that's fair I mean there's two parts of this right one like analyzing what's already happened but if we don't turn off the faucet then it's just going to keep happening right yeah exactly yeah that makes total sense to me you mentioned a manta trawl could you explain a little bit more what that would look like behind behind a boat (laughs) Yeah, so it takes its name from a manta ray because it's got a an opening like the mouth of a manta and then it's got these two wings off the side. Now, the manta trawl is composed of metal rather than a manta ray, but it's based on the same sort of shape. So it can float right at that surface of the water and we tow it behind a vessel. In our case, our, our yacht, our sailing boat, and we're able to just skim the very surface to see what plastics are floating on the, on the surface. Mm. And what were you finding there? Was it still kind of mostly the same fibers or were there different types of plastic that were more prevalent on the surface than in the rock all trough? Yeah, we've still found some fibers, but really um, polyethylene fragments dominated most of the samples. And these are the plastic bags? Yeah, it could be plastic bags, but it could also be some kind of like food packaging. Some of our like to-go mm. packaging is made of polyethylene. It's quite mm. a buoyant plastic, so it floats in seawater. So 
it kind of is logical that it would be at the very surface of the water. But yeah, in all of the ocean basins and in pretty much every sample we took, we were finding plastics, but uh, that this polyethylene was the most dominant type. We actually found very few large pieces of plastic, which, you know, you might think of the gyres, so these oceanic garbage patches that are in each of the ocean basins. They're sort of termed in the media as these large floating islands. Mm-hmm. And we sailed through two of them. And I think that mm-hmm. that was quite interesting because, yeah, the media portrays them as these large islands, almost that you could, you know, get off your boat and walk on them. But Mm-hmm. Kind of as I was saying before, the ocean was completely pristine. You couldn't see anything. Very mm-hmm. occasionally we'd find nets floating or some larger object, but it was really the microplastics, the small pieces of plastic that dominated. And it wasn't until we put our manta trawl in and scooped up the surface were we really able to see how much plastic was there. So I think that was quite an eye-opening experience for everyone on board who was expecting that, you know, it'd be quite obvious when we were in the gyre, we'd see this mountain of litter, but it wasn't. So again, just kind of discrepancy between how the media portrays plastic pollution and the reality of what's actually out there, that most of it's microplastics. And actually right. the mic- microplastics are maybe more worrying than larger litter because the smaller a piece of plastic is, the more animals that could eat it. If you think, you know, even a small animal could open its mouth so big and then a tiny piece of plastic could go inside it. So, yeah, it's the microplastics that are maybe more of a concern than some of the larger pieces. Right, right, because of ingestion. You can't necessarily ingest a trash can that's floating in the ocean, but yeah, it breaks exactly. down tiny pieces. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, with this, because you, you mentioned the Great Pacific garbage patch like you're right like it's been portrayed as this like plastic size island floating around that you can walk on and like I've talked about a little bit on the show before and try to dispel that myth and it's really Mm. more like a soup of microplastics but I'm curious was there a higher density of microplastics in these places versus elsewhere in the ocean like in these supposed patches we did find more in them. So I personally sailed through the North Atlantic gyre and also the South Pacific. And we did find okay. um, higher amounts of plastics in those regions. But actually, we also were finding high amounts of plastics in some of the coastal areas where mm. the inputs are much closer. Most of the inputs coming from land. So you'd think that the ocean closest to land has the greatest amount of inputs coming in. So yeah, we did find more in the gyres, but also coastal areas were also quite highly polluted. People talk about biodegradable plastic and like mostly what I tell people is it's kind of a myth and it doesn't exist and you shouldn't, (laughs) still should not be in the, in the, in the environment and biodegrading in the ocean is difficult. It just kind of breaks down, but it doesn't actually get hot enough for it to truly degrade. So am I like, am I wrong? What, what, what do you tell people or what, what does the science say? No, that's a that's a good summary. So yeah, my role now is working on biodegradable plastics. So since April of 2001, I've been researching biodegradable plastics in different parts of the environment, terrestrial as well as marine systems. And it is, it's a really challenging thing to try and wrap your head around. And I feel there's so many myths out there about biodegradable plastics, bioplastics, compostable plastics, all these different terms, like, what do they mean? (laughs) But I think your summary was really 
really good, biodegradable plastics in principle should break down into their components, so water and gas and biomass with the action of microorganisms. But they generally need good conditions for that to happen and warm temperatures as well as good uh, microorganisms to actually break them down so these aren't always the conditions that we find in the environment Mm -hmm. so just because something is labeled as biodegradable it doesn't really mean that it will degrade in the environment or even that it doesn't still doesn't contain different chemicals that are present in normal plastic so yeah Mm -hmm. understanding the impacts that that might have is really in its infancy in the discipline as a whole but that's something that we I'm trying to work on uh, in in my new role yeah I think it's really important because there's also like biodegradable and there's also um, compostable right which I mean a lot of people think they go hand in hand but there's actually different levels of composting the plastic Mm -hmm. a lot of them require these industrial composters which people don't realize and they get really, really hot and they require a lot of energy and you really can't do that in your home compost. It just doesn't get hot enough. I've tried. I'm like, hmm, let's try it. Compostable. It doesn't work. Yeah, um, <laughs> so I, I think it's really important to kind of highlight that. And I really like how you broke down what biodegradable means. It's not just, you know, degrading down into smaller and smaller parts like microplastics. It's actually breaking apart these bonds that form these, these compounds to their original molecular structure. Yeah, yeah. It's a complex issue you're tackling. (laughs) It is. I think another thing just to highlight as well about biodegradable plastics, because of the name bio, Mm -hmm. you might assume that they're made of plant material or, you know, they've Mm -hmm. come from a renewable or sustainable source, but that's not actually the case. So biodegradable plastics can be plastic that is composed of biomass. So ultimately that the carbon that's in plastic has come from a plant but that's not a guarantee it could also be that the carbon has come from petrochemicals so from the same Mm. thing as conventional plastics so that bio just at the front doesn't mean that it's from a a plant like a biological source it could be Mm. a chemical source a petrochemical source of carbon that's wild I didn't even think about that I I was on the train of like no it's made of at least at least like a biological product, not a petrochemical one. Hmm. Fun things that we're talking about. <laughs> so I saw in one of your interviews, that you mentioned nurdle hunts, and I want to talk about nurdles a little bit. Could you explain what a nurdle is and maybe where you first saw one? Because I think <laughs> it's such a fun name. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you call them nurdles in, a, in the US. They're just pre-production pellets. So the same pellets that sort of shipped around uh, the world that are then melted down to form all the different plastics, the plastic items that we use every day. These pellets are about five millimeters in size just so that when industry is feeding them into their furnaces they they melt nice and quickly and form a a molten plastic then be shaped into whatever we need a plastic bottle or a bag or you know something like that so yeah that that's a that's a nurdle a pre-production pellet and there's an organization in the uk that collects data on them. I'm sure you've got equivalents in in different parts of the world, you know, carry out surveys to identify nurdles. The first time I saw one actually was a beach in Cornwall in in the UK, quite close to where I'm based now in Plymouth. And um, Mm. yeah, they wash up 
on the shoreline there. So I think that's the first place I've seen them. But, you know, we found some in the middle of the Atlantic, miles from shore. We found some on the shoreline of the Galapagos Islands, where you think this beautiful, pristine environment is. I've seen them off the coast of Scotland. I've I've seen them everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, because it's pre-production, you would think it's like more controlled, right? Because like post-production is just out in the world. There's lots and lots of, I mean, billions literally of consumers. So the source of that's kind of hard, but I would imagine like there's, you know, lots of sources of nurdles, but there's not billions. I would think that's a little bit more controlled, but they're still found worldwide. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the source of them is definitely industry because they're the ones producing it and moving it around. But I think the challenge is because they are small and, you know, these industries are moving huge quantities of them so if you get a a strong wind or a bag rips while while you're shipping them you're suddenly talking about the potential for millions of these five millimeter particles to disperse over really large distances yeah it's crazy to think about it really is Mm -hmm. i actually found somebody oh in the last couple years and if i find her again i will put a link in the show notes but they she was making jewelry out of nurdles Yeah, I've seen all amazing art come from all sorts of different plastics that are now washed up on shorelines. And yeah, people are being really creative with what they can what they can do with this. I think it's great. It raises a lot of awareness as well. Yes, that's true, too. Very true. I have a few questions that I like to ask uh, towards the end of each show. Before we get to those, I'm really curious, what was it like being on the boat? I mean, you're conducting science, but it's an all-female crew and you're supposed to go around the world. Like, what was it like being a part of that mission? It was great. I I don't know how many sailors we've got listening, but I'm sure you know the challenges of trying to work on a yacht in particular, because of course, a yacht's heeled over at an angle because mm-hmm. you're using the wind to propel you forward. So there are challenges with moving around the boat, with just your day-to-day tasks. You're getting thrown around the galley whilst you're trying to make food. <laughs> there was 14 of us on board at any one time. So we had three professional sailors, all women, and then 10 guest crew from all walks of life. And they're degree of experience of being on the sea was very different so we had people that had never been on the sea to seasoned sailors so I think everyone took different things from it I think the camaraderie was amazing and you know people did get seasick at the beginning but the ones that were feeling better really took care of you and you know between us all everyone pitched in and got on with you know whatever jobs needed to be done in terms of the science There are challenges, again, with working on board a yacht that is quite limited in space and that's heeled over. We always went on motor to actually collect the samples um, for safety and to make sure that the Mm. boat was more flat in the water. But yeah, there, there are challenges. But I think overall, it was a fantastic experience. And I was so fortunate to get to go to some of these really remote places that not everyone has the chance to go to. And to combine that with my science and answering research questions about how is it out there, what the ocean currents doing, how is it distributing the plastic, you know, the impact was, was, yeah, it was an amazing experience. Very cool. What was one or two of your more favorite places that you went to? You mentioned they were very remote. Going through the North Atlantic Gyre was amazing because I've always read about these places, but I'd never been able to actually go out and see it firsthand. So having that firsthand experience 
that it isn't a floating island and there is just exactly yeah. as he said this soup of microplastics I think that's quite powerful now to have actually seen it myself but mm-hmm. another place that I've always dreamed of going of course is the Galapagos Islands and I was able to sail from Panama to the Galapagos and then on to Easter Island in the South Pacific and that was an amazing leg really remote yeah but also amazing to make land in these you know small islands so far from the mainland that's really cool really special Mm, yeah yeah what is your favorite sea creature I'm bringing back this question officially (laughs) oh (laughs) well I spent so much of my PhD researching starfish and the ingestion of of plastics by starfish that I'm gonna have to say starfish (laughs) all right (laughs) so wait starfish or sea star oh no the the other marine biologists are gonna (laughs) are gonna come for me um (laughs) I'll let that be a debate in uh, for the for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean it's so hard. Like I grew up starfish, 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 and like now it's like it's not a fish. So I'm that's like, okay, true. Star, but true. it still comes out starfish. It still comes out starfish <laughs> every now and again. So I get it. I get it. <laughs> if you were to be given a blank check, unlimited funds, what would you do with the funding? It's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, well, Mm -hmm. there are so many environmental challenges that need addressing. But, you know, as I'm a scientist studying plastic pollution, (laughs) I would I would use it in a couple of ways. So so we know that plastics have a cocktail of chemicals inside them and these might leach out into the environment. But we don't really Mm -hmm. understand the effects of the chemicals or even Mm. how long they persist in the environment, both the chemicals and the plastics themselves. So I'd invest some of the money into sort of more comprehensive studies to try and understand the effect of the chemicals and the plastics themselves on organisms and also human health. I think we need more work in that area to understand what it's actually doing to us as well. Mm -hmm. And The second thing is, as we've been talking about, plastic is such a multifaceted issue and it needs really diverse approaches to actually make effective changes. So I'd use some of the money also to bring together multidisciplinary teams. So bringing industries and regulators and economists and social scientists and oceanographers and biologists and, you know, as many people as I can get all coming at the issue together from all the different angles. And I think this would develop a much more holistic and comprehensive solutions to actually address the issue. All right. I like it. It's a good use of the funds. Actually, something I'm really curious because you do microplastics, what, and this is a really hot topic, (laughs) what are your thoughts on the ocean cleanup project? I feel that, you know, it's it's so challenging once the plastic actually goes out into the environment to try and clean it up, that we're much better directing our efforts at trying to stop plastic at the source. So try and limit the pollution actually getting into the environment in the first place. So that's definitely where I would focus my efforts is stopping the sources on land when they're still in a controlled fashion, rather than out in the environment where it's so much more challenging to actually clean them up right yeah that makes sense because 
I mean, if you're sucking up microplastics, what other tiny microorganisms are you also taking out of the environment? That's that's yeah. always been my concern. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The size range of microplastics is exactly the same as you were saying, like of zooplankton and all these other organisms at the base of the food chain. So, yeah, we don't know what else we might be sucking up, just as you said. Right. Makes total sense. Alrighty. At the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today? So I think we can feel quite helpless about global challenges, including plastics. We've we've spoken about so much plastic in the ocean and where is it all coming from and you know what we can do. And I'm often asked by people, what can I do to, to make a difference? And I think that individual actions like, you know, using reusable items, reusable bottles and bags are a really great step. But we want to push change higher up. So with industries and policymakers. So I think something that we could do is write to our local representative or large companies about their waste management strategy and their policies and really put pressure higher up to make you know, change these practices and uh, make companies do better and drive that change. But as a second point, I'd really encourage everyone to look at where their skills lie and use these to create the positive change. So perhaps you're a scientist listening to this and you can research and understand a topic and help inform policy or best practice through your uh, through your work maybe you're a teacher and you can bring environmental education into the classroom or you could go and do talks to different groups in your area in the evenings so I think when we try and think about what I can do what can I do it's a bit overwhelming because we've got this we're confronted with this so many possibilities it's really hard to know what to focus on but if we all just focused our efforts based on our skill set and our strengths and let that help identify our role in being part of the solution, we can actually all create quite a positive change. That's what I would invite everyone to do. Try and identify your role. I like that. I like that a lot. Not just like as a consumer kind of changing your habits, but also becoming, you know, a little bit more proactive in how you can respond in your own community and in your own ecosystem and pushing that higher up. I love it. Alrighty. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you or your work, where is the best place to do so? Yeah, so you can uh, learn more about the different projects running at my uh, at the University of Plymouth, where I work, by looking at the International Marine Litter Research Unit website. So that's the department I work for at the University of Plymouth. Um, and if you want to follow along with my research, you can connect with me on Twitter. I'm at Winnie CJ. Wonderful. And I'll put a link to that and everything we chatted about in the show notes. Winnie, thank you so much for being on the show today. I enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great to chat with you. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life.
if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.